Um, I'd just like to just preach this morning out of John chapter 1, and um, I've called this message, Though He Was Rich, Yet For Your Sake He Became Poor. And I, I've just been so enjoyed the last um, couple of months in my own time of just being able to study and read, and I felt God really speak to me in my own life. And so I've, ref- I've referenced some people, um, some writing from Michael Eaton and uh, also J.R. Packer. And some, some of the ideas that I share this morning are those men's ideas, but I think that's, um, that's brilliant that we can learn from other people and uh, God speak through his word. So I'm going to just read John chapter 1 this morning, the first uh, 14 verses or 15 verses. And I know Christmas is gone yesterday, but this is really what we celebrate at Christmas time, is this amazing truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the one only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think that's probably one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, is that uh, verse 14. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And truth. Father, I thank you for your word. I just pray, Lord, as I share these simple things this morning, that you would come with power, with revelation, that these things would grow full in our hearts, that uh, they would burn like a light and never be extinguished, uh, that through us, Lord, and through what you do in our lives, many might be touched, many might come to know you in this community. And we simply pray that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you know that old song that says it's the most wonderful time of the year. And uh, for me, I love Christmas. Christmas is one of the most wonderful times of the year. There's so much to celebrate, so much to enjoy, so much in terms of family and friendship, just to linger and spend lots of time together. And of course, when you come to this time of the year, always begin to reflect on the year past and reflect on things that have really mattered and what God has said. And as I've been thinking this this year, uh, this week, and just preparing for, for today, John chapter 1 really has um, caught my attention again, although the title of my message is not from John chapter 1, it's from 2 Corinthians, which we'll have a look at just now. But uh, I really trust this morning as, as, um, I, pre- as I preach that, that something of this wonder of the incarnation will not escape your heart this morning, because that really is what it's all about, Christmas time. And I've, uh, every year I get certain responses to Christmas, there are those people that say, well, it's all got to do with paganism and 
We shouldn't be celebrating Christmas because the origins are pagan festivals. And I think that's completely missing the point, quite frankly, because Christmas is about the incarnation of the living God who came from heaven and humbled himself and laid aside his glory and out of grace came and was born as a baby. And whenever you celebrate that, I, I do believe that we should celebrate that every day of the year. I think something of the Christmas spirit should, should be upon us every single day of the year. But we do lay aside this time, especially just to reflect on and think about the wonder of the incarnation that the living Christ came. Now, as I've been thinking about this there, there have, been, there have always been a number of objections to Christianity right from the very beginning, the first century. And I'm just going to summarize some of them for you. Uh, people have stumbled over the idea of the cross. How, how can anyone take upon himself the sins of the entire world and die on a cross? That's been an objection for people. Other people have stumbled over the resurrection. How can Christians possibly believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Surely, surely he swooned on the cross. These have all been theories that people have, been, have put forward, that Jesus swooned on the cross, that he just kind of lost consciousness, and then somehow he was resuscitated on the third day, and he, he moved the stone himself, or the disciples moved this massive stone, and, um, and, and uh, that's really what happened at the resurrection time. Or, or what, other, other objections, what about the virgin birth? How can Christians possibly believe in a biological impossibility that a, a woman conceived, a virgin conceived, by a supernatural me- how can How can Christians believe that? Now, these are all objections that have been raised over the years many, many times. What about the miracles? Well, it's interesting that if you um, read even Jewish history, that uh, Jewish historians have noted the miracles of Jesus. So even non-Christian writers have agreed that Jesus did live and he did die uh, he, and, he, and he did amazing miracles. But there are other objections that I've mentioned that people always bring to the fore. And for me, as I've been thinking about this, and I thought about our culture here in England, I think there's one, one basic thing that underlies all of those things, that when you resolve that, all those other things cease to be problems. And that's simply this thing that we celebrate at Christmas, that the fullness of God came and dwelt on earth. If you believe that Jesus was fully the Son of God, then the Son of God could raise himself from the dead quite easily. Then it makes sense that someone who took... Uh, the, that the cross begins to make sense then, that actually he did take upon himself the sins of all humanity. You understand what I'm saying? So for me, this, uh, this basic mystery of the incarnation is something that is deeply, deeply profound. And I think if we can fully grasp that, then something more of other things just pale into significance as we understand that the fullness of God came and dwelt among us, among us as a baby. And so on Good Friday, we celebrate... Jesus is atoning sacrifice on the cross, and that's a wonderful thing. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And those things are all true and magnificent, but the most staggering claim of Christianity is that God was fully made man. That truly is the most staggering claim of Christianity. Christianity. The most overwhelming claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus of Nazareth was God. When you begin to understand that, then everything else becomes insignificant. Not insignificant, but takes its rightful place. Jesus was truly as fully divine as he was human. It's the most outrageous claim of the Christian faith. And for me, I feel like we should be celebrating that 
with wonder. I think that, that draws worship from my heart when I, when I reflect on that more and more. It just draws worship that God would actually humble himself to do that. And we're going to look at some of the scriptures out of Philippians just now. But this is the mystery that we celebrate. It's a profound mystery. And as we celebrate this, we were actually reflecting on two things. The first is the mystery of the unity of the Godhead, that God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly together, perfectly in friendship, honoring each other in relationship. And then the second aspect of that is that there's this kind of relationship the union of the Godhead and man in the person of Jesus. I mean, that's a, a second incredible mystery. How is that possible? The Word became flesh and dwelt among, amongst us, John 1.14. And what, when you think about it, what, what that actually is just saying is that Jesus, God's Son, became a baby, became a Jew, was helpless. Uh, we just, uh, Jonathan and Jenny came around yesterday for, for Christmas, and their baby's a week old. I mean, when you hold a week-year-old baby, you realize how helpless babies are. And, and what I'm trying to say to you is that Jesus came and was like that helpless baby. And all that Jesus, he, all he could do was do baby things. He could cry and, he, could, and he, could, he needed to be changed and he needed to be fed and he needed to be put to sleep and uh, loved. Is, doesn't that absolutely blow your mind that that's what God did? He humbled himself. And just as I held Isabella yesterday, Mary would have held the fullness of God. <laughs> it is amazing. It is absolutely incredible. There's no illusion in that. The Bible is very real. It's very, it's very uh, descriptive. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it becomes. The more you reflect on it, the more you think that actually is absolutely mysterious and profound. Uh, it's um, J.R. Packer says this, it's the most fantastic story that could have ever been told in all of fiction is the incarnation of Christ. And for me, this is the real stumbling block to Christianity. This really is. And this is where Jews and Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them, and those that have historically raised objections that I've mentioned, that's, this is where people, all of those people stumble at this point. The fullness of God dwelling in a human form. And I think it's because of inadequate belief, or if maybe I could put it like this misbelief about the incarnation that all these other objections of Christianity find their root. But once we resolve and fully grasp that Jesus did come and dwell amongst us, the fullness of God in human form, then those objections fade away. So if Jesus was just a remarkable and a good man, then believing what the New Testament says about him is absolutely impossible. And you cannot resolve that tension. On the other hand, if Jesus was the same person as the eternal Word of God, which Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, by, through whom all things were made, if he really was the Word of God, then the creative acts of power that brought him into the world and the way that he was raised from the dead and left the world, those things don't become surprising anymore if he was the eternal Word of God. It's logical that if he's the author of life, he could rise up from the dead quite easily within his power. So once we understand Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty with his life, his death, his resurrection, or the miracles that he performed. I find it interesting as you reflect, if you want to, I'm sure you have over this time reflected on 
the Gospels and, and the writing of the story. And both Matthew and Luke tell the story, the details of the story quite descriptively of Jesus being born. And uh, let me just summarize it for you in two sentences. It's very simple. You've heard it many, many times. But basically, Mary is, um, she goes to the outbuildings of a small hotel in the middle of Palestine. She goes to the stable. And when you think about it, you know, we've, uh, I'm always fascinated by the Christmas cards. So, some of them are so pretty picture-perfect. And yet I think the Bible is, is much more cruel and much more real and rugged than that. Because the reality is that she was in the final stages of her labor. She had been, she had been riding on a donkey. And the compassion of the people was at such a low ebb that they could not find a place for a, a woman in the final stages of her labor to actually give birth. That's the reality of the story. Isn't it? And, and we would find that incredibly these days, I mean, you would never dream of that. <laughs> that was the reality of, it, of that first Christmas. That's really what happened. And the Bible is so uh, real. It's a degrading beginning for anybody to be ushered out to the stable, the outbuilding of this hotel, and say, actually, that's all we have for you. Have your baby there. <laughs> but the main point for me in the terms of the gospel story is fascinating because the gospels don't dwell on the details of the story so much, what they major on is the identity of the baby. When you read Matthew and Luke, they're much more interested in who the baby was than the, detail, than the details of the story. And there's two basic points that I've mentioned already that I just would like to take 10, 15 minutes to underline this morning. And the first is that the Bible simply says, the baby born in the stable was God. The baby born in the stable was God. And in fact, John says specifically in the first three chapters of his gospel that the baby born in the stable was not any baby. The baby was the Son of God, not a Son of God, but the Son of God. In fact, he qualifies it even further, and phrases like the only begotten Son or God's one and only Son are used depending on what translation you are using. So John makes a very, very simple point. And the, he knew that phrase. He was a Jew. He was writing to both a Gentile and a, a, a Greek and a Jewish background. He knew that the choice of that phrase, the Son of God, would be very difficult for the people he was writing to. He was not stupid. And why do I say that? Because, quite simply, in Jewish theology, the phrase Son of God was reserved for the Messiah that was to come. John knew that. He knew it implicitly when he was writing it. So he was aware of what he was doing. Secondly, in Greek mythology, there were many sons of God. And in Jewish mythology, those, those were simply supermen born to a human woman after being impregnated by one of the gods. So the Greeks would have known that as well, sons of God. They would have been quite familiar with that term. So John uses it Specifically, and we're going to look at that now, but when he says Jesus, the Son of God, does he mean then that God and Jesus are somehow separate, that they are two gods? And this is where the objections of, for example, um, Jews and Muslims come from, that they say Christians believe that actually in a poly polytheistic God, that they believe God is one and Christians believe God is three. So is that really what John is saying by calling Jesus the Son of God? Or does it imply that uh, Jesus, although he's human, is in like a category of his own. He's, he's somehow a superhuman, okay? 
so he's a son of God. He's like in a category all of himself that separates him from the rest of humanity. And uh, even though he's a very special kind of human, he's not really divine. Well, those points of view have been adopted in church history. In the first century, there was a bunch of people called the Arians, and they believed that, that Jesus, although he was a very special human being, was not the Son of God. And in modern times, there are other people that believe that too. Jehovah's Witnesses, that's exactly what they believe. They don't believe in the divinity of Christ. I've got around the corner from my house, there's a Christadelphian church. Christadelphians are a Christian sect in a sense, they don't, but they don't believe that Jesus was divine. They don't believe he was the Son of God. So these objections have been with us for many thousands of years, since the beginning of, of, the, of the birth of the church. But as we read John chapter 1, when we read that, you can see that John logically and very carefully, he dismantles all of those arguments in his prologue. Just like that. Seven points he makes. And I want to share them with you this morning. And I trust that if any of you have any doubt in your mind and in your heart that Jesus was not the fullness of God come to us in the form of of a baby, that you would leave this morning without that doubt in your mind, that it would be settled. That's the only object I have this morning, trusting that God would make that real in your heart. Now, when John writes his gospel... In John chapter 20, we read the reason for why he's writing it. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, he writes this gospel so that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. Isn't that wonderful? That's why John says he writes his gospel, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So I've talked about the issue of of uh, this phrase of the Son of God. But I believe that as we read John, uh, the, the prologue now, you will, I trust you'll begin to see that John writes that purposefully with one intention in mind to show us that Jesus is God. He's writing with the intention to show actually that this is personal. It is about Jesus and it's about his deity. That's why I'm using that phrase. He wanted to make it clear to the, the people reading his gospel that he was not using it in a Jewish sense. He was not using it in a Greek sense. He wanted to make it clear to people that the sonship that Jesus claimed had everything to do with his personal deity, the fact that he was God. So let's read then chapter one, uh, the, the prologue of John's gospel. And what's fascinating is this, is where do you see, you don't see uh, uh, John starting by using the phrase son of God. He starts with this phrase. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And so what he's doing very cleverly is he's circumnavigating all those objections and he's using an Old Testament phrase which Jewish Christians would have, uh, Jewish um, people with a Jewish background would have understood immediately. In the beginning was the Word. All right? And so what he's saying is he's making reference to example, for example, Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, where God speaks and says, let there be light, and there was light. Or Psalm 33 verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, he spoke, and it came into being. So what is John doing? He's saying, he's referencing the fact that God's word in the Old Testament has creative power. It's, it's the thing by which things are created and have life. And uh, that's how the Old Testament uh, 
depicts God's Word. And so he takes up that theme, and he says seven things about the Word of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And in that little phrase, he establishes the eternity of the Word of God. Before all things were created, the Word was. That's what he's saying. In the beginning was the Word. He was. Secondly, he says, and the Word was with God. By using that little phrase, that little word, with, he's already showing us that the, the Word is a person. The Word has personality because the Word was with God. In relationship, the Word is a person. So the power that fulfills God's purpose is the power of, this, of a distinct personal being who's in relationship and fellowship with God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And the third thing he says about the Word, he says, the Word was God. So he's established the eternity of the Word, he's established the personality of the Word, and now he establishes the deity of the Word. The Word was God. He's saying the Word and God are the same. So he's distinct from the Father, but he's not a created creature. He's divine in himself, just as the Father is. And in that little phrase, we already see the mystery of the Godhead, right there. Father and Son, the Word. Okay? What does he say fourthly? He says, through him all things were made, in verse 3. So now he's, he's, uh, he's defining it even further, and he's saying, the Word is able to create. It's create the Word is creative. In everything that the Father made, the Word was the agent for that creation to happen. And all things were made by and through Him. Fifthly, he says in verse 4, in Him was life. So not only does the Word create, but the Word brings life to everything. And for me, it's so important to, to, to be convinced of that. We're having discussions over our mealtimes with our boys because they're learning about evolution. And they're learning that um, things have existed for billions of years, and over billions of years, uh, things have come into being, and life has come. Well, I want to object to that on the basis of John chapter 1, which just says that in the Word, all things have life, and all things are created and continue to sustain and have life by the power of the Word of God. Amen? That's what we believe as Christians. The universe is held together by the Word of God, by Jesus. He holds all things together. Not billions of years of evolution. All life is created. All the forms of life are maintained by the Word. So, life in the person, the second person of the Godhead. And the sixth little thing that John qualifies and says, and that life was the light of men. Isn't that beautiful? That life was the light of men. So the Word also reveals things to us. The, the Word is creative. The Word brings life. The Word reveals. It's, it's, it's revelation. The plan of salvation could never been fulfilled unless this little baby was born. Amen. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And I love that statement of the incarnation. But uh, uh, as I was reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 is, a, is also a beautiful uh, statement of the incarnation. And in some sense, it's a little bit fuller because it says the reason also. It t tells us the reason for why Jesus came. And I just want to read it to you. It's lovely. It says, For you know the grace of the Lord. Isn't it wonderful when a, when a sentence begins like that? For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. <laughs> that is incredible. That summarizes the incarnation and why Jesus came, because in, it's implicit in it is saying, actually, this is the reason why he came, so that out of his riches he might give you riches, that he might take all your poverty upon himself and exchange it for his riches. So, in a very basic way, the incarnation shows God's grace. <laughs> it shows his mercy. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Uh, the God of glory chose to humble himself and, and, and allow himself to be born as a babe so that grace would come to us and salvation would come to us. Beautiful. So what does it mean when we see Jesus became poor? Does that mean, it's a very important question for us to, to think about because uh, there's this thing called kenosis, which is a theological term, and I, I won't go into it now, but in the 18th century, a, 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 a British um, bishop came up with this idea that actually if Jesus emptied himself, he must have in some way not been fully God. They, they had all sorts of theories. So some, some guys said, well, he didn't, he didn't lay aside his, his, his purity and all that kind of stuff. He just laid aside his omniscience and his omnipotence and all that stuff when he came as a human. And for me, it's very important that we think about that. Is that true? Well, I want to say it's not true. I believe the only thing that Jesus laid aside was his glory. He laid aside his glory. He laid aside his glory in eternity. And what, is, what does that mean? It means that he voluntarily restrained himself. He voluntarily restrained his power. He accepted hardship. He accepted isolation. He accepted suffering. He accepted misunderstanding. And finally, he accepted death. And when you read the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the way he, 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 he um, it's clear. It's not just a physical thing. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual thing also that he's wrestling through at that point, and it almost breaks him, and yet he comes to that point of saying, no, God, not, not my will, but yours, and I'll drink this cup. And so Jesus, he lays, he lays aside his glory. What does that mean? It means also that he completely and perfectly loves ugly, twisted human beings like you and me. And through his poverty, we become rich. The story of Christmas for me is one of absolute hope. It's saying, actually, there's hope for humanity. There's hope for a world that is completely ruined. There's hope for peace with God through Jesus. There's hope of redemption. There's hope of glory. There's, why? Because the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son to a human being, born in that led ultimately to the cross at Calvary. That is the most wonderful story that we will hear. And then my last little thing, I just want to talk a little bit about this thing of the festive spirit or the Christ, Christmas spirit. You know, every year people say, let's maintain the Christmas spirit. And sometimes I think we say that in a sort of jolly, sentimental way, kind of, you know, like a picture postcard way, little Jesus born in the manger in the stable. But when I, when I was just thinking about that, reflecting on that, that phrase actually is incredibly powerful. Christmas spirit, the, the festive spirit, what, what, what does it mean? Well, if it means that we should show the same spirit that Jesus exhibited in Philippians chapter 2, where he did not consider equality with God's son, but he humbled himself and he chose to make himself poor so that other people could become rich, then I think it's incredibly powerful. 
then we do need the Christmas spirit every second of every day, that we are those that live out of a place of emptying ourselves and living on behalf of others, just as Jesus did. The most challenging phrase for me in, in, in Philippians chapter 2 is one little sentence. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. <laughs> your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Uh, one of the things that I love every Christmas time is watching Scrooge on television, and I watch it every, every year. It's a powerful story. Surely that is the spirit of Christmas, that when revelation comes, when you understand how rotten you are, and how wicked your heart is, when revelation comes, that actually you give yourself in a different way to people. Out of just love. And saying thank you. I want to say that for too many of us as Christians, I think our sole ambition is limited to being nice middle class Christians. In nice middle class homes making nice middle-class friends, bringing up our children with nice middle-class Christian ways. And every other subculture of the community we just forget about. It's those that are like Jesus that will uh, make themselves poor and spend themselves on others and give themselves away to enrich the lives of others. I think that's what Jesus would have us do. And, and we've been thinking a long time and just saying, God, please help us. We want to be more involved with the poor. And uh, there's some ideas that we do have for New Year, but I, I, just, uh, I just pray that you would, I'm asking you to pray with us. Uh, we, we, we really do want to become more effective. Uh, I love that phrase that you said. You said, oh, I've figured out what an ambi- evening with a good ambiance is. It's a meal out without poor people. It's it just summarizes middle-class values like that. I don't want people banging spoons and getting in the way. And Give us a heart for the poor. Why I'm saying that is simply out of what I've shared with you this morning, that Jesus, although he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. Out of his poverty we might become rich. And let's pray for the same attitude. At Christ. And I pray that God would enlarge your heart. I pray that God really would enlarge your heart. And that as we go into the new year, we would find ways of serving the community that we expect nothing back for, but just to give ourselves away for those that are less fortunate. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I, I really don't. But I, I know God has something for this church in terms of the poor in this community and in other communities of the world because God loves the world that He gave His Son. And God loves people in poverty, and he wants to see them lifted up. Amen.